The key passage in the book of Romans is chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It seems remarkable that Paul would make such a statement and then immediately begin talking about man's rejection of and rebellion against God. Where is the good news? How can he call such a depressing message gospel? For the past few weeks, we've heard how all people, every one of us, participates in this rebellion against God. Today's passage is a culminating summary, the final charge of God against humanity. Darren Pesnell used to tell us that his purpose in preaching was to increase our joy in Christ. If Pastor Sam were to summarize his ministry, he might say he wants us to think with the mind of Christ. Pastor Roman might encourage us to have the compassion of Christ. Josh Olson loves to show us the sufficiency of Christ. Today, I want to make you angry. Not merely perturbed or upset or irritated, I want to make you furious. My purpose is to see you use that anger to gain a deeper appreciation of and love for the gospel. Stay with me. It's going to be a rough ride, but hope, peace, and joy await those who persevere to the end. Would you please stand as Joshua Sawyer reads the passage for us? All right, Romans 3, 10b to 20. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, you caused these words to be written and recorded for a reason. They're hard to hear. They're hard to say. But Father, your Holy Spirit intended that these words be given to your church for good. I pray that this morning you would accomplish your purpose. May we hear your word with sober hearts but joyful. May we be equipped by it to share not nice news, but good news. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Cooperstown, New York. Canton, Ohio. Cleveland, Ohio. Nashville, Tennessee. Jamestown, New York. What, is the, what these towns have in common? They 
They all, who said that? Very good. Luke knows. They all house Hall of Fame museums. They talk about, one over here too. Okay, there are two people who already have heard the sermon. No. <laughs> they house Hall of Fame museums. Baseball, football, rock and roll, music. Who knows what's in Jamestown? Comedy. Do you know, yes, Virginia, there is a national center for humor, and they do include puns. <laughs> All of these celebrate the elite, the accomplished, the exceptional. Did you know the Bible has similar lists? Remember, remember last summer when we looked at the life of David? Remember David's mighty men? The 30 heroes who were his core of soldiers, the ones who supported him in his, in his reign? What about the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, where we celebrate Moses and Noah and others who believed God's promises and it was counted to them as righteousness? What about the 12 apostles? We remember those who by nature of their exploits or faith or both, we look to as heroes. But Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, is a very different kind of list. Rather than a hall of fame, you could call this scripture's hall of shame. And all of us are members. Beginning with mankind in general and ending up with God's own people, the Apostle Paul shows us that all of us, rich or poor, civilized or barbaric, sophisticated or simple, every people, every nation, every gender, every age, all of us fail to follow God however we might understand him. Even those to whom he had particularly revealed himself through miracles, mercy, and protection, even they failed to recognize him as God and to follow his ways. All of us, every one, is a member of this hall of shame. And now this passage wrapping it all up. Why does Paul call the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ good news? Because we, all of us, every man, woman, and child, have turned our back on God and gone our own way. For this reason, no rational person can look God in the face and say, I am righteous. I am good. I am pure and holy. I am like you. Here is the offense of the gospel. It's not God's position on gender issues. Not economics or education, health care, climate change, sexism, racism, or ageism. It's the fact that God tells each one of us that no matter how good our intentions, no matter how great our efforts, no matter how much change we see in our own lives, we're not holy. God says to us, you are not holy. Everything you do polluted. Every intention of your heart is false. Even as you have turned your back on me, I turn my back on you. I am your enemy. Many sermons have three points. Today, I only have two. You get a discount. God's statement to our predicament and his remedy for our malady. First, bad news for modern man. 
Today's text is a summary of the first three chapters of Romans. God, Paul is charged that all people at least know that God exists because the very existence of this world demonstrates his eternal power and his divine nature to everyone. And instead of showing him humility and worship, we have neither honored God nor shown him gratitude for his blessings. We worship the gifts rather than the giver and exchange the eternal glory of the creator for the passing fancies of his creation. As a result, God gives us what we want. Romans 1 says, God delivers us into the hands of our lusts, our dishonorable passions, our debased minds, to do what ought not be done. What's the result? Paul, Paul records, we are gossips. They're slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, heartless, ruthless. Though we know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, we not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's not me, you might exclaim. Oh, what murders and adulteries do we watch in movies and TV and call it entertainment? Whose bodies do you lust after on your screens? Whose wealth do you not see and say, that should be mine, they've got too much? Whose poverty have you scorned muttering, get a job? How many times have you talked about someone behind their back spreading gossip, the juicier the better? Whose reputation have you slandered and called it just? When you see such behavior in others, do you not get angry? Do you not judge those who do such things? And yet, we're all guilty of doing the things that we judge others for. But wait, you exclaim, I am a Christian. I know better than that. I do better than that. And yet the name of God is blasphemed by the ungodly because of the behavior of those who claim to follow him. Paul writes, there is none righteous None righteous, no, not one. Look at verses 13 and 14, just still drilling down into what God says about us. Watch the progression. Our throats are like open graves, noisome, foul. Our tongues are deceptive, not only lying about others, but lying to ourselves. What comes flooding out of our mouths when you think someone has done you wrong, even something as inconsequential as cut in front, cutting in front of you in line. Our words inform our actions. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Our paths are full of ruin and misery. We do not know peace because we do not fear the Lord, the only giver of peace. Are you angry yet? Is there no one here who will not shout me down saying, you're not talking about me? I know that I cannot defend my own righteousness. I don't have any. But everyone does these things, you might say, and you're right. That's why all of us are guilty. And so everyone is guilty before the bar of God's justice. We've refused to follow him. We insist that we are right and he is unreasonable and petty in his justice. We're rebels. 
traitors against the righteous one, not just in one or two minor acts, but in the very substance of our lives, our motivations, our words, our actions. We are guilty of high treason against the living and true God. Did you know that according to the U.S. Statutory Code, chapter 115, I looked it up, whoever owing allegiance to the United States levies war against them or comforts their enemies, giving them aid and comfort within the United States or elsewhere, is guilty of treason and shall suffer death. This is the sentence to be pronounced by a fallible and unholy government against those who rebel against it. How much more shall be the penalty of those who, create, who commit treason against the one living and true God? Paul summarizes his argument by saying that everyone who holds that there is such a thing as right and wrong, that is, everyone, they're accountable to such a concept of right and wrong and is guilty of what of their own transgressions by the things that they have done, said, and thought, in order that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In our words, actions, and motivations, we fail to meet even our own standards, our own moral code, much less God's perfect standard the law of holiness. By virtue of our treasonous conduct, we are rebels, outlaws, unable to redeem ourselves or to produce righteousness. Because of what we are and what we have done, we are enemies of God and defenseless before him. Okay, you say, how bad can it be? What's he going to do about this? After all, this has been happening since creation and he hasn't done anything about it yet. Why should I fear? Let me take you back to Josh Olson's sermon at the beginning of this month. He was preaching from Romans chapter 2. In the second chapter of Romans, verses 4 and 5, Paul asks, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, that is God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This statement should fill our hearts with foreboding. Picture a lake high on the Allegheny Plateau. It's a beautiful area. It's full of mountains, beautiful creeks, small rivers, Lots of green, gorgeous. Make it a resort, a place to go to when you just want to kick back, get away from the office, do a little fishing, get back to nature. Add a drop of water to the lake. Does it make a difference? Add five drops. Can you see the level change? How about a small shower? Nothing? No problem, it's just water. Everybody gets wet sometime. It's just water. Have you ever seen a dam fail? Take that lake, the one you just pictured in your mind. Put it 14 miles upstream of a town. We'll call it Johnstown. In May 1889, 
The area around Johnstown received over 10 inches of rain in less than 24 hours. All that water, all those drops, all those streams growing, roaring, the rivers becoming cataracts, all that water getting higher and higher. There were some who noted that the water was rising and they frantically tried to shore up the dam, but to no avail. Water kept rising. Downstream in Johnstown, the streets right next to the river began to flood, but still, it's just water. You live by a river, it floods from time to time. Just before three in the afternoon, the dam burst. The entire lake drained in about an hour's worth of time. The first thing that the waters hit on their way downstream was a 78-foot-tall railroad viaduct. It was erased, obliterated. The next town on the, on the, uh, the march to the sea was a place called Mineral Point. When the waters passed Mineral Point, there were no, no factories, no structures, no houses, no subsoil, nothing left but bedrock. Wiped clean. Sixteen people died there where the volume of the waters flowing past equaled the volume of the Mississippi River at its delta. A train engineer seeing the oncoming cloud of water and debris and, and destruction threw his locomotive into reverse and raced the, the stream down, down, the, down the river, blowing his whistle. His actions saved lives. But then the water caught up with him, lifted his locomotive off the track and threw it aside. In Johnstown, when the water reached there, it was a wall of water and debris over 60 feet high, traveling at over 40 miles an hour. Over 2,200 people lost their lives. Do you think that God is doing nothing about the injustice of this world? About human slavery or economic exploitation? about the death of civilians in Ukraine, about the murder of children in our schools, the murder of unborn children, or the callous indifference to the plight of unwed mothers below the poverty line. Do you think it escapes this notice when men and women are murdered because of the color of their skin, or that people of all ages are enslaved to drug abuse, or that those who are defenseless, the elderly, the sick, the handicapped, the dependent, are seen as economic burdens rather than as people made in the image of God. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. But because of our hard and impenitent hearts, we're storing up wrath for ourselves against the day of wrath. Against that day and that flood, no one will stand. I told you this message would have two points. God's statement of our predicament and I wanted to lay it out as clearly as I could, so if you feel like I've been drilling it in, I have. I know. God's statement of our predicament and his remedy for our malady. In establishing the first, two point, the first point, I've looked at the first two chapters of Romans. In establishing the second point, I need to look forward in the book of Romans to see if there's any hope for hopeless rebels. As we move to that second point, I'd like to share for a moment why this passage is so important to me. I was raised in a family that went to church. 
Every time the doors were open, we were there. Choir, Sunday school, meals, special services, work days, vacation Bible school, you name it, we were in it. I was religious, but I was not a Christian. I thought that the things I did or did not do were what would save me, what would get me into heaven. Even as I first heard the gospel, I believed that it was my decision rather than the finished work of Christ that saved me. You might have heard a preacher say before, God cast the vote for you, Satan cast the vote again you, and you cast the deciding vote. That was my theology. I thought I closed the deal. I made it stick. But if that's the case, that meant that I was saving myself. And if I could save myself, I could also toss away my salvation. I became a Christian hundreds of times. Practically every time there was an invitation given, you'd see me walking up front to talk to the preacher again, eventually wondering in my heart, how long can this go on? Then by the grace of God, I ran headfirst into the book of Romans. I learned that my spiritual state was more dire than I dared fear. R.C. Sproul once said that the only things that we contribute to our salvation are sin and resistance. I had those in spades. But I also learned that God's love and power to save were greater than I had, could ever imagine. God did not just make salvation possible and leave the rest up to me. It's your decision, Paul. You deal with it. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he powerfully accomplished my salvation. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, he effectively called me to faith and applied to me the finished work of Christ. And despite my fickleness and weakness, he holds me in his strong grip and will not let me go. Salvation is of the Lord. If Romans 1 through 3 is true, where do we go? Who, to whom can we turn? God himself is our prosecutor, our judge, our executioner, our enemy. Who can deliver us from his hand? Is there a remedy for our malady? To answer these questions, I told you you need to go a little bit further in the book of Romans. If you'll give me grace to do two words. But God. We have turned away from God to go our own way. But God. We are separated from God by our sin. But God. Because of our rebellion and treason, God is our enemy. But God. With these two words, Paul introduces hope into our lives. But, but God now gives us the righteousness that he requires and that we lack. He provides it. But now this penalty for our sin is met. The price is paid. But now... The alienation that once stood between us and God has been replaced with adoption. We who were once God's enemies, he has made family. How do we know? How can we be sure that peace really is available, that fear can be replaced with love? What evidence do we have that the Apostle Paul got it right? Look here. This table is the evidence that God so loved the world that he gave his son. This table is the evidence that the judge of all the world will do what is right. 
God, did, God the Father did not wink at our sin like an old good old boy judge telling us he can fix our ticket for running that stop sign. He didn't overlook our fits of rage saying everyone loses their temper from time to time and just smile at us like a doting grandfather. Instead, he paid the cost of our sin and rebellion. He gave his son. What about Jesus? Jesus didn't go reluctantly like a truculent two-year-old, I'm going to do what my dad told me to do because i got to do it. The Bible tells us that for the joy set before him, he scorned the shame of the cross. He endured it, delighting to purchase for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. When he died on that cross, he died for every adultery, every grasping avarice, every hateful thought, every unjust discrimination, every sin. He died for the sins of his people. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, the Holy Spirit brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He gives us faith in the promises of God. He seals us into God's family forever, not as mere servants or slaves, but as beloved children, heirs of the Father and joint heirs with Christ. Salvation is the act of the triune God, the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. This is good news. The war can be over. There can be peace with God through Jesus Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, you hear this, what will you do? Will you simply say, that's nice, but I'm a good person. I can take care of myself. Really? Will you claim to be perfect and then call me a hypocrite? Will you spit in the face of God and go your own way? There's a remedy for your malady. God himself bids you come. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have your sins forgiven. Receive the love and forgiveness of God and find rest for your soul. Are you a Christian? My, this passage is not just for people who don't know Christ yet. This passage is for us too. When you fail at a parent, as a parent, every time you say one thing and do another, when you lament over defeat in your struggle against sin, remember that you are made holy by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You're saved not by what you do or don't do, but by Christ's perfect obedience to his Father. Remember what I said about my early faith? When I thought my actions, my obedience would save me? No. This table is not for the self-righteous, those who think that they are perfect and can save themselves. It is for sinners who have given up trying to save themselves, who cast themselves on the mercy of the one who loved them and gave himself for them. Come to this table. By faith, feast on God's provision for your sin and be at peace. Is there any righteous, any who truly seeks God, any who is without sin? No, not even one. There is no peace or hope on our own terms, only God's just condemnation. But will God reject any who acknowledges his sin, who comes to him trusting in his son? Anyone? No, not even one. He invites you to come.
Amen. Would you please stand?